0: Welcome to our ECP podcast series, where we talk about exciting activities within our department. I'm your host, Santosh Pandey. Our guest today is Professor Hongwei Zhang from the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Iowa State University. Hongwei, thank you for joining our listeners today. Today, we want to chat about your research on wireless communication systems and rural broadband, along with education-related topics that will benefit our student listeners. To start with, Wireless communication networks are essential in our everyday lives, and even to effectively address the 21st century challenges, be it an extended reality, connected and automated vehicles, smart and precision agriculture, smart energy grids, industrial IoT, or cyber physical systems. Do you think we are too dependent on wireless networks today?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Santosh. You know, in many ways, computer networks, such as wireless networks, have become, to some extent, essential utilities for, our, for us, right? Just like water and electricity. But on the other hand, there's just so many sources of uncertainties and so on in wireless systems, right? So the question is, how can we develop wireless networks we can bet our life on, right? So that we can really depend on them no matter what, right? I think that it's actually an open question today. I think there's benefit of wireless networks out there, right? It's very clear. It is even essential for many industries, also even our daily life. Uh, Just imagine how much time we use our cell phone. So looking forward, there's this really core question of how do we develop trustworthy, dependable wireless networks that can serve as the foundation of 21st century communities and industries. There are actually many research questions to be answered, a lot of opportunity for our students, our faculty members, and the industry to work on, actually, to hopefully deliver this the level of dependency that's needed for such mission-critical networks.
0: Could you briefly describe some of your research work here at Iowa State and what facilities are available in your research laboratory to support your work?
1: My own research has been mostly focused on You know, in layman's language, how do we develop wireless systems that we can bet our lives on? Essentially, we look at the kind of wireless networks that tend to be, you know, mission-critical or even safety-critical, such as some of the use cases you mentioned earlier, agriculture, autonomous transportation, and so on. So one of the specific questions we have been looking at is, how can we enable predictable, real-time wireless communication for those safety-critical cyber-physical systems? So that's kind of, in a nutshell, uh, our general research direction. Now, In terms of um, research facilities that are available at ISU to support this kind of research and other wireless research, we have been developing different type of facilities. For example, in our department building in KUVL 3038, we have kind of indoor testbed of software-defined radios plus some IoT devices. Uh, we have recently completed another field project, the Cynet project, by which we have deployed open source 5G type of base stations at the ISU Curtis Research Farm and the ISU Research Park in the south part of the town. And then uh, there's actually another very exciting project we started about half a year ago in collaboration with many colleagues in our department, such as Daji, Ahmed, Mai, Jung, and many other colleagues in our department. Tom and so on, and together also other uh, colleagues in the university and partner in the state of Iowa and beyond. We are building this aerial wireless living lab, uh, which we hope will serve, you know, first of its kind research infrastructure for allowing us to study the next generation of uh, rural broadband solutions. And part of that is going to be focused on the safety critical, mission critical wireless systems, uh, which I personally actually spend the majority of my time on today. And, you know, as part of the Living Lab effort, we would also be working on activities, processes, and that can help engage our students, our partners in industry and communities, also the broader research community to work on some of the grand challenges we kind of alluded to, right? How do we enable trustworthy, dependable wireless systems for safety critical applications? So, you know, the project is actually just started, but we look forward to uh, working with our students and partners in the coming years to really push the boundaries of wireless systems in general.
0: So that's great. What are your thoughts on the broadband divide that exists in rural America today, in that people living in cities have access to the fastest Internet, while those in rural areas have 20 megabits or less of Internet speed?
1: So it's unfortunate to see the broadband divide we have today. Um, you know, in U.S., we have tens of millions of people living in the rural Americas. And also if you look at the rural industry, such as agriculture, the future of agriculture is actually dependent on having broadband connectivity to the field, right, to the farms, which we don't have today. So there are actually many reasons for the situation we have today. One of them is because there's a lack of focus um develop rural-specific technologies. Most of the broadband technologies are developed, uh, you know, from San Diego or Silicon Valley, you know, in some of the other technology centers in the country or across the world, right? So most often, when a new generation of solutions emerge, then they tend to focus where the majority of the use cases are, right? Which tend to be, unfortunately, if you look at the number of users will be actually on the urban, So that's why we kind of see that most of the technologies that are available today are mostly developed with the specific urban use cases and settings in mind. That's part of the reason we don't have, for example, the technologies that are affordable enough to be deployed in the rural regions. So in order to address those root causes, essentially we have to look at the specific rural environment, rural use cases, even including the rural economics and how that impacts the type of technology that would succeed in the rural uh, regions. Those are some of the motivations for us to start actually looking at the rural broadband as a research direction and see how that may actually help address the challenges we see today. I guess, you know, one thing we have learned in this exploration so far is that, yes, there are those challenges uh, that we need to address, but in the meantime, It turns out those challenges are actually really, really good opportunities for us to think about rural-focused innovation and community development. You know, I feel that there are actually many forces that are coming together to allow us to start thinking about the future where you could see, you know, kids in the rural community start becoming the drivers of some of the rural-focused technology innovation. And as such, innovation could become a foundation for community and economic development. I think that those are some of the topics beyond what we would tend to focus on as engineering professors. But I think there's just so much opportunity over there that's worth, you know, for our students and faculty members to start thinking about and help potentially leverage some of those opportunities to create exciting um, paths forward for the rural communities and even for our students and kids in Iowa.
0: Right, right. Uh, You know, if you see the field of agriculture or livestock farming, it is challenging to have a sustainable and profitable business for farmers, for example. On the other hand, wireless communication and wireless networks, they are driven by cost and profitability. So whereas in agriculture and livestock farming, profitability is very challenging because it's complicated and there are a number of issues and constraints that limit profitability. So in that space, is it practical to incur the extra cost of setting up wireless communication networks? Or do you think in the long run, farmers can actually generate profit?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question, Santosh. There have been studies by USDA and many other researchers and research uh, organizations. One number I actually remember was something like the following. So if you have borderline service to the farms in U.S. as a country, the enabled precision agriculture can generate up to f- over 40 billions of uh, new revenue just because of the use of broadband-enabled precision agriculture technology. So yes, there's actually the cost of rolling out the broadband technology itself uh, or service itself. But along with that, it actually creates the, the opportunity for improve the efficiency of uh, agriculture, for example, reducing the input such as water and fertilizer, but also maximize the output right, as a way of actually improving the profitability of agriculture practice today.
0: Do you think your recent project on era Wireless Living Network can address the broadband divide that we just talked about?
1: I think you know the era Living Lab could be a facility, could be a tool for the broader communities to address the broadband divide. You know, addressing the broadband divide would actually really take a whole industry or whole community approach. But what we can help, I think, at ISU would be, one, establish the Living Lab facility well, and then also be a good contributor in terms of research, education, innovation. For example, help our students succeed, right? They could be the driver of some of the new technology uh, innovation. And so we are here to help. Yeah, so I would imagine that we could be a a contributor, even though we will not be alone, we'll not be able to address the divide by ourselves.
0: You know, wireless networks need to be highly predictable and reliable, and there needs to be less uncertainties, and there needs to be higher throughput. Isn't all of this too much to ask from real world systems? And what are some of the biggest hurdles in realizing predictable and reliable wireless networks, especially in the 5G generation?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, compared to wired networks, there are just so many source of uncertainties and dynamics in the wireless networks, right? For example, if you just look at the wireless channel, given two radios, one transmitter and one receiver, depending on, you know, whether there's actually some movement in the environment, the channel is going to be different. There are those very inherent dynamics and uncertainties that you may not see in the wired network systems. And with the openness of wireless signals, uh, it's also just opens up the door for attack. There's actually just a lot more attack service when it comes to wireless networks. But that said, I think, you know, just like uh, when we think about internet, right? Uh, When internet started back in the 1969, the first message was sent, just three letters. You know, it was from the UCLA to uh, Stanford Research Institute, SRI. The researchers leading the project at the time was trying to send a word like log in, right? L O G I N. They want to log into from UCLA to the machine in SRI, but then the network was just not reliable, right? Even though it was wired, only three letters was able to get through. L O G. That was sixty nine. But if you look at today now, look at the wired internet. You know, once in a while it may still fail feel, feel miserably, but you know, I would say, you know, 99% of the time the wired internet has been able to serve its purpose. So, I guess intellectually, the question is how do we build dependable systems out of independable components? I think a similar question may have been asked in various uh, disciplines in computing. Uh, I would imagine probably in your field, uh, which I, I don't understand as uh, so much at Santosh, but I would love to. I think the beauty of the question is really how do you build a dependable, trustworthy systems out of unreliable components?
0: Especially in rural areas where you are exposed to environmental changes, weather changes, and uh, everything else.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, so especially for our students who may have been looking at coding theory, one interesting exercise we just recently started actually was looking at by working with Mike Luby, one of the, uh, the founders or the pioneer of uh, Fountain Code. We are looking at the case where can you have a strategy such that if you look at the end user experience, the message would flow across the network and adapt to the network condition in a seamless fashion. So there are certain strategies that can be leveraged to address some of this inherent, like for example, weather impact that you know, we will be actually starting to look at. We would very much welcome participation from our students in some of this uh, project and exploration.
0: I presume these days most of the innovation in wireless communication systems is led by industry. Could you talk about your industry partnerships and what do you think is the role of academia in furthering innovation in this area?
1: You know, working with industry has been always a source of uh, inspiration for myself, actually. We get to learn what are the challenges they face and also the constraints they have to keep in mind when coming up with solutions. You know, in academia, we can simplify our assumptions and relax our constraints and some, but it's not so when you go to the real world. So it's a, it's a continuous learning process for the Aero project. We actually have um, <clears throat> partners from actually various industries. Uh, you know, we have partners from the wireless industry, such as, you know, Nokia, uh, and Guylock Wireless, and, uh, which is actually a startup. We have partners from the application technology industry. For example, the Collins Aerospace, who is using wireless for, for, for example, for drone control, for uh, like XR, extended reality. We also have uh, partners in the, what I would call the application industry, such as agriculture, such as, you know, John Deere and so on. Through the Aero Living Lab, we're trying to bring together uh, the thought leaders Uh, in the broad ecosystem that's needed to drive the development of wireless technologies uh, as well as their use in specific industries applications besides working with existing industry leaders there are opportunities for startups i do believe in this space for example isu have uh, recently started this uh, student innovation center we have many other innovation focused training programs across campus I think our students can actually leverage those opportunities, both entrepreneurship training and also the, some of the research and innovation opportunities in rural broadband and application, I think, help shape the future of the industry. Because I think, you know, the only thing that do not change is change, right? The industry is changing. I think there's a um, need for new sorts and new approaches. That's where I think in general, USA has been doing very well in terms of empowering the startup communities. Uh, What we can do better, I think, in the Midwest is, I think, probably here in ISU is try to see how we can better help our students also to succeed in that space, right? Instead of just thinking, when I graduate, I'm going to find a big company and then uh, spend my life there, right? But think about what are the grand grand challenges that need to be addressed there and how can I really help solve those problems? And as part of that, you get a chance to actually do things that's potentially even more exciting than joining a big company and then, uh, you know, spend your career there.
0: Yes, that's correct. When you started thinking about the rural broadband connectivity, there are so many options to choose from. There is the LEO satellite communication, there is Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, ZigBee, LoRa. So how did you narrow down to one of these?
1: That's actually a very good question. In fact, when we think about the use case of a rural broadband, it's actually very diverse. It turns out, there's no single technology that's going to be the optimal solution for all use cases. So I think in the end, what's going to happen is that you will see a combination of these technologies you mentioned that will get to used in general. Like for example, you could imagine a truly remote farm, right? A remote large ag farm with thousands of acres of land. No people living there, actually. So you could imagine in that case, maybe the new satellite communication can provide the backhaul. But once when you need connectivity in the farm, uh, you could potentially see maybe a portable 5G base station deployed at the field. That's providing connectivity from the backhaul to the, for example, agriculture machines on the farm. And then uh, you know inside the vehicle, you can imagine potential use of Wi-Fi or Bluetooth for various in-cabin operations, right? And as the vehicle uh, drive around, it may communicate with sensors on the ground or on farm uh, using Zigbee uh, and so on. So I think it's going to be actually a a combination of different technologies. So one of the uh, I guess the research question here, uh, research and en- engineering question here could be, you know, how do we manage such complexity and ensure that the system can be analyzed so that you can ensure predictability and dependability as we discussed before? Yeah, so again, this is actually a very interesting, another interesting dimension when it comes to uh, rural broadband as a field.
0: So what you're saying or what I understand is, the smartest way is to use a combination of different approaches in the field and see which ones work and which ones is best for the scenario, right? Yes. On a related question, compared to Wi Fi, for example, TV white space is said to be better suited for rural broadband connectivity, mainly because it can pass through obstacles, man made or natural. Is that true? And what are the benefits over rivals? And a follow-up question is, do you think TV white space holds the answers to all the rural broadband connectivity issues?
1: Yeah, TV white space is, uh, in a way, to some extent, it's actually an overloaded term. There was a time, it, this has been a very exciting research field. Uh, in terms of wireless spectrum, it refers to a low-band spectrum, somewhere around uh, like 500 megahertz to 700 megahertz band. So, being at the lower band, it does actually suffer less of the power attenuation. Very convincing at the time. But that said, I think white space as a spectrum band is still a prime band for rural broadband solution. As part of the Aero project, we have some research platforms we're going to deploy that will leverage the TWY space band. Uh, we will introduce some new technologies such as MIMO, the multi-antenna solution, to address some of the drawbacks of the um, you know previous generation of tv space uh, technologies. Uh, for example, a lack of capacity, lack of coverage, and so on. Uh, so I think it's still a very fiction band that's of a huge potential, and uh, we should definitely try to find ways to leverage this resource.
0: So could you describe some of your projects in open source hardware and software that's developed in your research? And are you a proponent of open source software?
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm a proponent of open source in general. So in terms of open source hardware and software, we have been using some of the the software-defined radios from National Instrument NI, uh, like the USRP, uh, SDRs. For example, the N320, those are some of the latest SDR platforms, which you can can actually use to build base stations. You can use to build a 5G base stations, which is actually what we're going to do as soon as just a few months down the road. Uh, Software, there are some really interesting development in terms of open source 5G software stack. There are two, kind of some of the early pioneers, such Open Air Interface and SRS and they provide, uh, you know, host that open source solution for LTE and 5G. And recently, there's actually another nonprofit, profit Open Networking Foundation, ONF, led by well-respected networking researchers, actually, Larry Peterson and Blue. They were professors before they uh, went to uh, start the ONF Foundation. Uh, so I feel this is where we would see a lot of opportunity and excitement in the coming years and potentially even decades ahead. It has a potential to transform the paradigm on you know the, how the telecom industry and in- technology are going to evolve, and also who can participate, who can be the driver of those innovations. We have all seen the, the impact of Linux on operating systems and computing, right? You know, we ask the same question: if you have the whole like, stack open source telecom solution. That's going to help, especially for what we are talking about today, right? For rural broadband and how to empower kids in remote rural regions to participate in such exciting innovations. I think uh, open source will be a key enabler there.
0: Do you think creating a 5G open source software stack would be a pretty monumental task?
1: Right. Yes, indeed. Indeed. You know, companies have hundreds or thousands of engineers developing commercial grade solutions, right? So, uh, how will this open source work? I think that's where I have, you know, deep respect about, you know, folks who are leading the ONF charge. They have actually, I think, found a good model so that, you know, traditionally, when we think about open source, we tend to think about, you know, maybe it's like one or two person spend their life days and nights and working, hack things out, right? And plus the open source communities. So what the ONF have been trying, based on my limited understanding so far, is that they actually find a model to have an organization, I mean, organization with very uh, talented researchers, engineers, and they have resources to just dedicate their days and nights to the cause. So it's not like uh, just one or two people take their like office hours, work on this. They, it's their full-time job and mission. So I think uh, the hope is there. I think the industry is also seeing the benefit. Uh, how exactly this is going to work out, that's yet to see, but... Uh, I feel the promise is uh, there. So.
0: so, moving on to questions related to student mentoring and teaching, my question was what is the organization of the group that handles the ARA Living Lab project? Okay. You, know, you have multiple teams there, and each yeah, yeah. faculty has students. How do the students within each team coordinate?
1: Yeah, them? yeah, yeah. Um, in a good question, Santosh. Um, yeah, indeed, the, you know, the effort does touch uh, many disciplines, so we actually need students and faculty members from, uh, even within our own department, you know, from the computer engineering, but also from the network engineering, but we also have students and colleagues from other departments. For example, maybe just take maybe one project, right? Take the Aero project as an example. The whole team is organized into four working groups. There's uh, the infrastructure working group uh, led by uh, Professor Daji Chao and uh, Ahmed Kama that's focused on um, building out this research infrastructure. And then there's the software working group led by Professor Mai Zheng and Yung Guan that's look at the software right behind the, you know, that's really the, the soul of the whole test bed. And then we have the research working group led by Professor Kama and Yung Guan. That's look at engagement, right? Engage the broad research and education communities uh, across the country. Uh, that's a research working group. We also have the consortium working group led by currently in part by myself and also Professor Tom Daniel. Look at how we can engage the public-private partners in this overall effort. So overall, we have these four working groups uh, working together with, they have their own individual missions, but we also work together to drive progress together. As far as the students are concerned, yeah, you know, for our, most of our students, we have to know enough about computing, wireless, and to some extent, even control, uh, of course, software to be able to work on some of these projects. Yeah, but I think in general, students have been learning uh, very well we have been also able to engage some undergraduate students even in some of the development and research work.
0: So what are the courses that you would recommend for undergraduate and graduate students to take to be able to be proficient in this field?
1: Yeah, in terms of the coursework, I think for undergraduate students, I would uh, definitely encourage you to study the CPRE 480 line, Computer Networks and Data Communications, but also keep in mind, uni course does not give you all you need, right? So right. be prepared to read literatures and so on. You know, for students who may be interested, you can go to my uh, website. There's a link to a, a webpage that has information about uh, some of the necessary uh, training that may be needed to work on some of the cutting edge uh, wireless research. Well, anyone who may be interested, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'll be happy to chat.
0: How does Iowa State compare with other U.S. institutions in terms of research and wireless communication?
1: You know, wireless communication itself is a broad field, right? I think uh, at ISU, we do have faculty members working on various areas from circuits to communication theory to communication systems. I think we have, you know, a good coverage in general. Also, with this Aero project, that also helped us to hopefully serve a leader in rural broadband research i think that's uh, one mission we can take on and uh, you know hopefully contribute to the wireless research field but pretty much every university does have um, likely a wireless program but i think uh, uh, one hope we have is to help build the era and living app, so that it can be a tool for the broader research community across us but i think uh, internally we also of course want to think about what are the unique contributions we can make to the field, and how can we organize as a team, and how we can leverage error to that end.
0: So, do you have any final word of advice for our students who are interested in wireless communication?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I think you know this is a field of over hundred years age, but in the meantime, it's also very young. Yeah. So, overall, I think uh, there's actually a lot, a lot of opportunities in the wireless communication field, especially with some of the mega trends now, such as softwareization of Tenicom, where you see the convergence of uh, wireless and computing. Also with the emergence of cyber-physical systems, you see the convergence uh, of wireless computing control and so on. So I think there are actually many interesting problems to be solved, and it's an interesting field to be uh, explored. So you will not be bored if you actually choose wireless as your field. And also at ISU, we are here to help, uh, you know, we'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can best uh, help you to succeed.
0: That's all the questions I had for today. Thank you so much for our discussions. I think we learned a lot about wireless communications. Thank you.
1: Thank you Santosh for having me.
0: Thank you.